Ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Acts chapter 3, starting with verse 17. We'll go through verse 26 and finish out the chapter. We are in the middle of Peter's preaching at the beautiful gate, or actually not at the beautiful gate. It was in Solomon's porch after the healing of the man born lame at the beautiful gate. And now Peter and John have a crowd because of that healing. And he is now starting to preach salvation to the crowd, starting in verse 17 of Acts 3. And now, brothers, I know that you did it in ignorance, just as your leaders also did. Know that Peter calls his fellow Jews brothers. He's not talking about his Christian brothers. These guys weren't saved. So he identifies himself with the crowd. That's application point. It's always good to try to identify as much as you can with the people you're talking to, which means you might have to get to know them a little bit, have to share their culture a little bit. People just... Cross-cultural communication is very difficult. I lived in China for tw- over th- about 23 years. I'm telling you something. I can't tell you how many times people miscommunicated. <laughs> I mean, it, it just got to be a part of life, miscommunicating. What did you mean? What did you say? Oh, I didn't understand that. And sometimes years later, oh, gosh, I didn't realize that I had done that. I had said that. So Peter identifies with his fellow Jews. And it's interesting that he calls them brothers right after in the previous verses he pointed out that they were murderers. You kill the Son of God. So he's giving them carrot and stick. Now, Peter says, I know that you did it in ignorance. In my opinion, that was very nice because after all what those Jewish leaders had seen, all those miracles, all the teaching of Jesus, and they still killed him? I've always always had trouble when Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. I said, yeah, they knew what they were doing. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. First of all, we know that the Jewish leaders that killed Jesus saw all of Jesus' miracles. They heard his teaching. They knew all about it. So how did Peter say that they did it in ignorance? Well, here's my attempt to answer that question. Many of these Jewish leaders knew that Jesus was a miracle worker, but they didn't know him to be the Messiah. Now, if they had gotten through their thick, rebellious, stupid heads that Jesus was the Messiah, of course they wouldn't have killed him. But they never got to that place. They didn't understand the full implications of his message. Now, here's what Adam Clark says about Peter's statement that they did it in ignorance. Quote, this is a very tender excuse for them, and one which seems to be necessary in order to show them that their state was not utterly desperate. For if all that they did to Christ had been through absolute malice, they well knowing who he was, if any sin could be supposed to be unpardonable, it must have been theirs. Peter, foreseeing that they might be tempted thus to think, and consequently to despair of salvation, tells them that their offense was extenuated by their ignorance of the person they had tormented and crucified. And one must suppose that, had they been fully convinced that this Jesus was the only Messiah, they never would have crucified him. But they did not permit themselves to receive conviction on the subject. Yeah, they they didn't permit themselves to receive conviction on the subject. That's the truth. And I think that's true because, after all, Paul, uh, he persecuted Jesus thinking he was doing a good thing for God. So, yeah, you can do things in ignorance. Now, Jesus did talk about the baptism, excuse me, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's when people did miracles. He did miracles, and they accused him of doing miracles by the devil. Now, that's a little bit different. That's a step above just not believing and not being convinced. But you go around saying the Messiah is, is Satan, forget it. You keep that up, you're not going to find repentance. Now, let's ask another question. Does ignorance excuse the crime? Well, you know, in, in law, in Western law, common law, Ignorance of the law is no excuse. And Gill says, yes, their ignorance did not excuse the crime. Well, of course it doesn't excuse the crime. They were all guilty of sitting there listening to the words of Jesus and then killing and allowing him or advocating his death anyway. Yeah, they were guilty. 
but they weren't guilty to the point where they couldn't repent. Now, does the ignorance mitigate the crime? I think ignorance usually does mitigate the crime, but it's no excuse for the crime. Peter probably mentioned their ignorance to try to show that your, your sins are not unpardonable. Now, here's some scriptures to back up this idea of the leaders acting in ignorance and not with conscious knowledge of who they were killing. 1 Corinthians 2, 8. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom, for if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So you see, they were acting out of ignorance. It might have been blind, stupid, and willful ignorance, but it was still ignorance. Luke 23:34. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, because they do not know what they are doing. So Jesus was saying, look, these guys, they might have been willful, they might have been stupid, but they don't know what they're doing up here. They think they're killing a false Messiah. If they had known that Jesus was the true Messiah and killed him, whoa, that really would have been bad. Acts 13, 27, for the residents of Jerusalem and their rulers, since they did not recognize him. The residents of Jerusalem and their rulers, since they did not recognize him. They didn't know he was the Messiah. Or the voices of the prophets that are read every Sabbath have fulfilled their words by condemning him and fulfilled the words of the prophets about the suffering Messiah, which we're going to talk about in just a minute. We're going to look at some of those prophecies. They heard the prophets, but they didn't, and they heard Jesus' teaching, but they didn't recognize him as the Messiah. If they had, they wouldn't have killed him. They acted in ignorance. Peter's talking exactly truthfully here. Acts 26, 9, in fact, this is Paul speaking, in fact, I myself supposed it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus the Nazarene, which Paul is basically saying here, is I supposed wrongly I was acting in ignorance. Now, John Gill says that only some of the leaders did it in ignorance. Some knew exactly what they were doing. Ooh, well, I don't know about that. Here's his quote. Others of them knew him to be the Messiah, to be sent of God by the miracles he did, and yet blasphemously, blasphemously ascribed them to Satan. Well, I guess so. Those were the ones that really are going to be deep in, living in the deeper suburbs of hell. John 3:18. But what God predicted through the mouth of all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer, he is fulfilled in this way. Now, where did the prophets predict that Jesus would suffer? I'm going to read you a whole ton of them very quickly. Well, first of all, I'm going to read Luke chapter 24, 26 through 27, where Jesus is on the road to Emmaus on Resurrection Sunday day, talking to two disciples, Cleophas and another disciple. He said this, Didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. So Jesus went right back to the Old Testament and said, Look here, the scriptures predicted. I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. Isaiah 53, 7 through 8. Some of these scriptures I'm going to read may have been the scriptures that Jesus pointed to. Isaiah 53, 7 through 8. He was oppressed and afflicted. This is the suffering servant. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers. He did not open his mouth. He was taking, taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. That's a perfect prediction of Jesus, of course, and his suffering on the cross. Now we go to Acts 8 and we see uh, the uh, Ethiopian eunuch Candace, the Ethiopian queen's eunuch, is being converted here by Philip, Acts 8, verses 32 through 33. Now, the scripture passage, referring to Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8, which the ones I just read. Now, the scripture passage he was reading, that's the Ethiopian eunuch was reading, was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before its shearer. So he does not open his mouth, and his humiliation, justice was denied him. 
Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So there you have a man about to be converted reading about the suffering of Jesus as predicted in the prophets. How about Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 2? Why do the nations rebel and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth, or you could say the rulers of the land, take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Of course, the Romans did that too, but it was mainly the Jews using the Romans as their cohorts got the Messiah killed. And that's who Peter's preaching to, of course, is the, is the Jews. That kings of the earth, I am fairly well convinced, can be translated as the rulers of the land because that word earth, eretz, in Hebrew, gay, and Greek, can either mean earth or land, translator's choice. At any rate, whatever it is, the rulers conspire together against the Lord. To conspire how? To kill him. Well, it conspire together against the Lord, that's Yahweh, and his anointed one who is Jesus. Acts 4, verses 25 through 26. You said through the Holy Spirit, this is Paul before the San, excuse me, Peter and John before the Sanhedrin. You said through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot futile things? That's Psalm 2. The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers assembled together against the Lord, against his Messiah. So you see that, that prophecy in Psalm 2 that the rulers of the land, the rulers of the world, of the earth will conspire against Jesus that psalm was quoted right to the Sanhedrin, to those very leaders to say, hey, you just fulfilled psalms by conspiring together against Jesus the Messiah. Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? Which, of course, that's a messianic psalm. Jesus quoted it on, quoted it on the cross. Matthew 27, verse 46, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. And by the way, that's... Uh, Home and Christian Study Bible's translation for three in the afternoon. Some people say it was more like 12 in the afternoon, noon, which happens to be my view. That's why I mentioned that. So at any rate, whenever it was, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that's Aramaic, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus quotes Psalm 22, showing that the prophets fulfill are fulfilled in Jesus' suffering. 1 Peter 1.11, they, that's the prophets, inquired into what time or what circumstance the Spirit of Christ within them was indicated when he testified in advance to the messianic sufferings and the glories that would follow. He, that's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, he testified in advance to the prophets, to the Old Testament prophets, about the quote-unquote messianic sufferings, unquote, and the glories that would follow. So you see the prophets did prophesy about the sufferings, and Peter knew all this, and he was telling the people here gathered in Solomon's porch that the prophets were fulfilled by the suffering of the Messiah. And that was probably important because, you know, it's hard for these Jews to imagine a suffering Messiah, a Messiah crucified as a criminal. Peter pointed out to him, hey, that's just like the prophecies in the Old Testament predicted, so don't be surprised at that. Don't let that be a stumbling block to you. Remember, even the apostles had trouble with the idea of a suffering Messiah. Peter had trouble with it, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown points out. Remember when Peter said, no, Lord, they were up at Caesarea Philippi during the Galilean ministry, and and Jesus said, well, I'm going to go down to Jerusalem and get killed, or go down to Jerusalem, and I think they knew he was going to get killed. I think he actually said he was going to get killed, and Peter said, no, Lord, no, you're not going to go, and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. And Peter, they just couldn't understand this idea of a suffering Messiah. Peter had a lot of trouble with it, and so he's trying to tell his Jewish audience, hey, get over the fact that your Messiah was crucified as a criminal. Acts 3, verse 19. Therefore, repent and turn back, Peter continues his preaching to the Jews there at the beautiful gate. Therefore, repent and turn back, so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. 
Now there's the turn or burn verse, repent and turn back. Repent, as the NIV Study Bible says, its definition is a change of mind and will. In other words, change your mind, change your will. Turn has to do with the actions that you do upon changing your mind. You turn your life, not just your mind, but your whole course of life away from your nasty sin, that you, your selfish life that you will lead beforehand. Now, and you know, it's really easy to get into a lot of controversy here on just what it takes to get saved, and boy, do the theologians argue over this. Lordship, salvation, people, carnal Christian people, or the dispensationalist type people, the marrow controversy back in the couple hundred years ago, I think it was. And the idea is, well, you know, naked belief, we know that belief is not a work. You believe in Jesus, but a lot of people want to say, but repentance, you have to show repentance and turn, and you have to do something, which means you're getting saved by works. Well, I think the answer to that, and I've waded through that controversy enough and still remain fuzzy about it, uh, I think that the answer is, it's all part of the same package. If you believe in Jesus, that means you are going to have a change of mind, because You're going to turn your heart towards Jesus, that's faith. You're going to turn your heart away from the world, that's repentance. And then once you do that, you're going to say, yuck, what a terrible, lousy life I'm leading. I want to live a life for God now. I think it's all part of the same parcel, part and parcel of the same package, so I don't worry too much about all that. Notice that your sins are wiped out. I like that translation, wiped out. That means they're gone, eradicated, exterminated, (laughs) rooted out completely. Now, after you do repent, what happens? Seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, I'm I'm assuming this is individually now because it's talking about your individual repentance. For everybody who repents, you're going to have a season of refreshing. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit comes in and gets you saved. Boy, you are refreshed compared to your old nasty way of living. And to me, this is the most wonderful apologetic for Christianity. Look at the people who are living a happy Christian life compared to the people who are living like hell like the sports figures and the Hollywood figures and all the people on Lifetime Movie Network and all those movies I like to watch. They're morality plays. You do this sin and this sin and this sin. You can almost catalog the sins they're doing. And your marriage breaks up and your life goes to hell. And of course, they never talk about Jesus in the movies and they never get the answer. But if you, if anybody turns from their sin and repents, you're going to get refreshed. Seasons of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. Now, the Lord either, either is God or is Jesus. I'm not sure which. We go to Acts. And the, by the way, seasons are refreshing. The season is the Messianic age. It's the, the season of Jesus between the first advent and the second advent, if you will. We now go to Acts chapter 3, verse 20. And that he may send Jesus. That means upon your repentance, he may send Jesus who has been, been appointed for you as the Messiah. Now, assuming that means send Jesus to you personally, Jesus has already been sent physically. He's been appointed to you as the Messiah. Now, I said that it was sending Jesus personally, but not all agree with that. John Gill denies it exactly. Well, no, excuse me. Jesus, uh, John Gill suggests that it could refer to the second coming, that he may send Jesus at the second coming who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. I don't think an individual's personal repentance has got anything to do with Jesus' at second coming. He's going to come regardless of whether one of those individual Jews repented or not. So Gill denies that that's what the sent means here, and I agree. I don't think it means that either. John Gill says that when Peter says that Jesus will be sent, that he may send Jesus, the sending is God sending Jesus in the form of his word and his spirit. Well, I can go along with that as, as, as long as you assume that Jesus' word and Jesus' spirit goes to the individual convert, the individual person who is receiving the message of Jesus. 
Acts chapter 3, verse 21. Heaven must welcome him until the times of the restoration of all things, which God spoke about by the mouth of his holy prophets from the beginning. Now, what does restoration of all things mean? Here's some options. It could be the restoration of the people of God to purity. John Gill denies that. It could be the time, the restoration of all things means when all the elect is gathered in. John Gill says that's when it is, which would make it at the end of the world. Adam Clark says when the kingdom of Christ is established on earth, and I guess he means the kingdom in its final consummation at the very end. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says it refers to the rectification of all the disorders of the fall, which again would be at the end. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say the times of this restoration refers to the whole period because it's times, the seasons, the epoch, if you will, the whole period between the ascension and second advent of Christ. So in other words, this restoration is not a point in time thing at the end of the world, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, but it's a continuous period, the inner advent period between the first and second comings of Jesus. And during that time, of course, heaven welcomes him. He's in heaven while all things are being rest restored during the church age. And of course, he's going to come back. He's going to physically rule when the church age is over, when all things are restored. But until then, the times of that restoration are happening right now, during the church age. It's a glorious time, despite the fact we look around in the world and see all the nastiness that's going on. Jesus is restoring his kingdom right now in the church age. You've got to see it. You've got to see it in the eyes of the Spirit by the eyes of faith. Now, God spoke about these times of restoration by the mouth of his holy prophets from the beginning. And so now Peter here is giving an introduction to the Old Testament discourses about the times of restoration, about the coming of the Messiah. He's going to talk about what Moses said in verses 22 and 23 coming up next. And then he's going to talk about what David said in verse 24. And then he's going to talk about what Abraham said in verses 25 and 26. Now, you ask me, how is Moses a prophet? I'm going to show you that Deuteronomy 18.18. Deuteronomy 18 shows that Moses is indeed a prophet. We think of him as a lawgiver, but he's also a prophet. How about David? How can you say David's a prophet? Well, I was shocked to find out just just recently. In fact, uh, last Sunday in church, somebody mentioned that David was a prophet. And I went, wait a minute, that can't be. And then I was going through my notes to do my last audio. Sure enough, I think it's one of the Psalms. We'll talk about that. It says that David's a prophet. And Abraham is a prophet? I never thought of Abraham as a prophet. Well, I got Psalm 105 to show that, yeah, Abraham's a prophet. It's very interesting. It's interesting the stuff you learn when you start studying the Bible closely. All right, so Moses, David, and Abraham, his holy prophets from the beginning, have predicted about the times of restoration, have predicted the church age, basically. So let's start with Moses, Acts 3, 22 through 23. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. There you go. See, Moses is a prophet. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet, that would be Jesus, like me, like Moses, from among your brothers, amongst the Jewish brothers. The prophet, like Moses, was going to be a Jew. You must listen. Jesus was a Jew. You must listen to him and everything he will say to you, and everyone who will not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from his people. Now, this is a famous passage from Deuteronomy 18, verses 15, 18, and 19. I'm going to read them to you, just for emphasis. It's basically quoted pretty closely. Deuteronomy 18, starting with verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him, verse 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. I will hold accountable whoever does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name. That's verse 19. So a prophet who's going to hold you accountable. 
You got to listen to him. In other words, Peter's telling these people, you better listen. The, the Old Testament scriptures talked about his prophet. He's here, and it says, you're going to be held accountable if you don't listen to him. You've already killed it, killed the prophet, and you're going to be held accountable if you don't repent. And that's basically what he's getting at. Now, this prophet that Moses predicted was supposed to be like Moses because it's because Moses says in Deuteronomy 18:15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. And, and Peter repeats that in his quotation. God will raise up a prophet like me. In other words, like Moses. Well, how is Jesus like Moses? This is how John Gill answers that by quoting Numbers 12, verses 6 through 8. He said, I guess that's Moses, I think. Listen to what I say. If there is a prophet among you from the Lord, I will make himself known to... And that's God speaking, I'm sorry. Listen to what I say. If there is a prophet among you from the Lord, I make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. I speak with him directly, openly, and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. So why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So you see, Moses was a specially strong prophet. He didn't see things in fuzzy riddles and and uh, apparitions and and visions and dreams that you got to interpret and you got to search diligently to see what in the world did the Holy Spirit mean here. No, God just went and said, "This is what I want you to tell the people." Here's commandment number one. Here's commandment number two. Directly, likewise, Jesus is a prophet like that because he, of course, is eternal with God the Father from all eternity was coexisting with God the Father in heaven, and therefore all that the Father knows, the Son knows. There's no veiling between God the Father and God the Son. Now, in his human form, there might have been. That's why Jesus had to pray. But nonetheless, Jesus in his divine form, well, let's put it this way. Even Jesus in his human form, he saw the Lord's will clearer than any prophet ever did, even though it was not as when he was in an eternal state. And so we now move to Acts 3, verse 24. In addition, Peter continues, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those after him have also announced these days. Now, I mentioned earlier that Peter was going to talk about how David was a prophet here in verse 24. So we're going to focus on David here. Peter says, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those after him. Before we get into the particulars about David, let's notice this phrase, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those after him. What have all the prophets spoken about? They have announced these days. Now, that's an interesting verse because what Peter is saying is that all the prophets in the Old Testament, all the prophets, which means at least many, many of them, if not all of them, literally, all the prophets have announced what days? The days of the millennium at the end of the world? No. Have announced these days. And what days was Peter talking about? He was talking about the seasons of refreshing, the things that happened at Pentecost, the things that had just happened a couple of days earlier. He was talking about the first advent of Jesus. And I came to this on my own, reading the prophets and getting frustrated. What, are they, what time are these prophets referred to? I'm going to tell you this with a great deal of confidence. The Old Testament prophets are either referring to historical events that are close to the time they prophesy in Old Testament history, or they're prophesying about, prophesying about the first advent of Jesus, not the second advent. If you will hold on to that precious idea, you will understand the Old Testament prophecies a lot better. And you might end up being a non-premillennial uh, guy or woman in your eschatology. All the prophets from Samuel and afterwards have announced these days, the days of the first advent. Now, the prophets from Samuel on were actually predictions of David's rule. 
But David was a forerunner of the Messiah. So David is a prophet in the sense that he was a type. We're also going to look at a scripture which says he was actual prophet too. But the prophets, not David himself, but the prophets prophesying about David, they are prophesying of the Messiah because David's the type. Jesus is the antitype. He's the fulfillment of the type. So let's look at some of the prophecies of Samuel. First Samuel thirteen fourteen. But now your talking to Saul's. Now your Saul's reign will not endure. The Lord has found a man loyal to him, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people. That's David. Because you have not done, you Saul have not done what the Lord commanded. First Samuel fifteen twenty eight. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingship of Israel away from you today, Samuel speaking to Saul, and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. That's given the kingdom to David. 1 Samuel 16:13. So Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him, anointed David in the presence of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord took control of David from that day forward. 1 Samuel 28:17. The Lord has done exactly what he said through me. This is Samuel speaking. The Lord has torn the kingship out of your Saul's hand and given it to your neighbor, David. So Samuel obviously spoke of David, who was a type of Christ. And so when Peter, in this evangelistic message here, when he mentions a prophet, the prophet Samuel, he's mentioning the predictions that Samuel made that David would rule. And of course, we know that David, though it's not just Samuel predicting David would rule, the prophets that came after Samuel predicted that David's descendants would rule, descendant, I should say, would rule on the throne. That would be Nathan. So let's look at Nathan's prophecy. This is a very famous prophecy, Second Samuel 7, 12, 13, and 16. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, this is Nathan talking to David, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body. Jesus was a lineal descendant of David. And I will establish his kingdom... That's the kingdom of Christ, the church. He will build a house for my name. That's the church. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He will rule on the, on the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and kingdom will endure, endure, endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. So Jesus has now sat on David's throne. Paul mentions this famous prophecy of Nathan in Second Samuel 7. Paul mentions it in Acts 13, verses 22, 23, and 34. After removing him, after removing Saul, he raised up David as their, he, God, raised up David as their king and testified about him. I found David, the son of Jesse, a man loyal to me who will carry me, carry out all my will. Verse 23 in Acts 13, Paul continues to preach. From this man's descendants, from David's descendants, according to the promise, God brought the Savior Jesus to Israel. Verse 34 in Acts 13, since he raised him from the dead never to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will grant you the faithful covenant blessings made to David. Now Peter has referred in our verse to the prophets who come after Samuel, and we mentioned Nathan already. How about David himself? David was a prophet, and he prophesied about himself. Acts 2.30, this is referring to David. Peter is speaking in his Pentecostal sermon, being therefore a prophet... This is referring to David, and David being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. So David himself had a prophecy to himself, I guess, from God, a revelation from God to himself that one of his descendants was going to be on the throne. So David himself is a prophet. All right, so we see these famous Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in the, first, in the, in the New Testament. So David is spoken of here in Acts chapter 3, verse 24, when Peter says to the people assembled. In addition, all the prophets who have spoken, Samuel, he talk, spoke about David, and those after him, that was Nathan speaking about the descendant, have all announced these days. All right, so now Peter has spoken of 
Moses, talking about the prophet that comes afterwards, Jesus. Now he's spoken about David and the antitype of David and the descendant of David prophesied by Nathan in order to convince his Jewish listeners. Now he goes to Abraham. Acts chapter 3, verse 25. You, Peter is speaking to the Jews that are listening, you are the sons of the prophets. And of the covenant that God made with your ancestors. Now the prophets here is referring to the forefathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's a little bit surprising. Because you don't think usually of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as prophets. but that, And we'll show that that's what he's talking about. You are the sons of the prophets. You are the descendants of the prophets. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're your fathers. And you are sons of the covenant that God made with your ancestors. That's the famous Abrahamic covenant. Acts 15, Acts 17. Genesis 22, not Acts, I'm sorry, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22, Genesis 26. It's repeated over and over again. Land, offspring, and blessings promised to the patriarchs, promised to the descendants, fulfilled physically in Israel and spiritually in the church of Jesus Christ. That's the prophet, that's the covenant that Peter is talking about here. And then he refers explicitly to Abraham. Let me read the verse again. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your ancestors, saying to Abraham, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. That's the, that's the famous Abrahamic covenant that's, that's being quoted here, and Peter quotes part of it. I give you, I'm not going to give you all of them because they're everywhere in, in Genesis, but I'll give you one, Genesis 22:18, And all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your, Abraham's, offspring because you obeyed my command. And I think that's the part of, that's the, the, part of the covenant where Peter is quoting here, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. As Genesis says, Peter says, all the families of the earth will be blessed. How? Through your offspring. And you notice that offspring is singular. The NIV study Bible points that out. And since it's singular, it points to Christ because that's the singular offspring. And of course, we are the plural offspring of Abraham. We are Abraham's children. By the way, I just looked it up in the Septuagint, too. I was curious, is the Hebrew, I don't know Hebrew, so I don't know, but the Septuagint translation of offspring is singular, and Peter quotes it as singular, and that's and that's indicative of something, that Jesus that Jesus fulfills that prophecy of Ab- uh, that, that Abraham made. That, excuse me, he fulfills the covenant that was made to Abraham. Now, how do you say that, Let's go back to this interesting question. Peter tells that his listeners, you are sons of the prophets. How are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the forefathers, how are they prophets? Well, this is how you can prove that. Uh, by the way, before I go to that, this idea of the offspring being singular, I mentioned that, that NIV study Bible pointed that out. Well, even more important than that, Paul pointed it out to the Galatians, Galatians 3.16. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, and that seed there is singular. He does not say and to seeds plural, as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed, singular, who is Christ. So that's where the NIV study Bible got that idea. And so that's what Peter's trying to show, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant promises, which all good Jews, I'm sure, knew. Now let's get to the question of how can Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how can they be referred to as prophets? Well, let me read to you Psalm 105, verses 6 through 15. This is interesting. I never would have thought of Abraham and Jacob as prophets. Abraham and Jacob are not only mentioned, they are specifically referred to as prophets. Psalm 105, starting with verse 6, O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, that's Israel, the son of Abraham, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God, his judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, the famous covenant, his sworn promise to Isaac, 
The covenant that he made with Abraham, verse 9, his sworn promise to Isaac, verse 10, which he confirmed to Jacob, that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as a statute, to Israel, that's another word for Jacob, as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. That's the famous Abrahamic promise, land promise, which we just talked about. Verse 12, when they were few in number of little account and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account. And this is the key verse, verse 15, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. And so we see the word prophets used in context with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now I do need to point out that some people dispute whether that word prophets refers to the patriarchs or rather to all of Israel in general. Adam Clark says this, It is supposed that the patriarchs are here intended at this word prophets, and that's what I'm supposing. But the whole people of Israel may be meant. They were a kingdom of priests and kings unto God, and prophets, priests, and kings were always anointed, so maybe. However, the Cambridge Bible for Schools and College gives the opposite opinion. It says that that word prophets does refer to the patriarchs. Quote, the patriarchs were not actually anointed, but the term is applied to them as bearing the seal of a divine consecration in virtue of which their persons were sacred and inviolable. Inviolable. Abraham is called a prophet in Genesis 27 as an intercessor, and the term is applied to the patriarchs generally as the recipients of divine revelation. And so the Cambridge commentary says that the word prophet is used in kind of a loose sense. They receive divine revelation, which prophets do, and since the... The patriarchs received divine revelation to receive the covenant. They're called prophets. I got no problem with that. They were prophets. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were prophets. Then Acts, in Genesis 27, we, we see Abraham directly referred to as being a prophet. Now return the man's wife. This is, I forgot which king it was. It had Sarah and his concubine. Abimelech was one of them. I, I don't remember. doesn't matter. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. Abraham is a prophet, P-R-O-P-H-E-T. Calls him a prophet. He will pray for you and, and you will live. All right, so that was sort of a long rabbit trail, but it was interesting. So when Peter, in Acts 3.25, to get back to our main topic here, Peter says, you are the sons of the prophets. He's talking about the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the sons of the patriarchs, of sons of the fathers, sons of the covenant, the covenant that God made with your ancestors. So that's why Peter is speaking accurately, completely accurately. When he calls Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob prophets. We go to the last verse in Acts chapter 3. That's verse 26. Peter continues. God raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. And of course, that's the suffering servant of Isaiah. Jesus is the servant. God, Peter calls him his servant. And he raised him up. How? Well, it could have meant, it could have meant Peter could have meant that Jesus was raised up into his ministry. Or it could have meant that he was raised up physically at his resurrection. Or it could have been he was raised up into heaven at his ascension. It really is sort of ambiguous. But fortunately, it doesn't make any difference. The point is, is God sent Jesus to bless you guys by turning. Turn or burn. There it is again. To bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. So you see, in this evangelistic presentation by Peter, let's, let's tie up some ends here for applications. First of all, he identifies himself with the hearers. He calls them, he calls them brothers. He tries to be nice to him by saying, hey, you, you did kill the Messiah, but you did it in ignorance. But he never saw soap the fact that they were sinners. He says, look, guys, you killed him, and you are walking in evil ways, and you can turn from your evil ways. And that's the way we should evangelize, too. Don't soft soap the fact that people are sinners. 
yeah, I'm, I don't know if you're like me, but I don't like people to dislike me, and I and also I'm not very confrontational, so it's hard for me to look somebody and say, hey, you know, you're a sinner. I got used to it finally. Every now and then, I did most of this in China, when somebody would say they didn't think they were a sinner, I said, you ever lied to your mama? And that was the end of the argument. Oh, yeah, 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 I'm a sinner. I don't know how deeply they felt it, but they at least admitted on the surface that they were sinners. At any rate, I'm finished with Acts chapter 3. We will take up Acts chapter 4 when Peter and John are taken by the nasty Jewish Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Israel, and asked to defend themselves. We'll do that next chapter. Hope you listen to the next audio to hear that, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 